0: Good morning to to you all. It's good to be here with you this morning. I thought that it had been a while since I had uh, last preached in a service in Kirkpatrick, but I'd forgotten how long it was. Um, I've been uh, away a couple of weeks, but I've just realized um, Monty was speaking here the week before that, and I was away on the knock weekend uh, before that. So uh, my name is Christoph Ebbinghaus. I am supposedly uh, the minister uh, here in Kirkpatrick Memorial. I'm very grateful to people who have uh, been serving and and doing stuff here in the weeks when I haven't been around. As many of you will know, my dad died in the week before last and was buried on Monday past. Um, In the nine and a half years since uh, God brought me to Kirkpatrick Memorial. He's chosen to call home both my mum seven years ago and then almost to the day um, on the the 6th of February uh, this year, my dad. During that same time, he has given me uh, a new family in Claire and Patrick and Sophie and Ruby. And he's also uh, given me at you at my church family here at Kirkpatrick Memorial I, I just wanted to, to say thank you uh, for standing with us in uh, the difficult days of the last few weeks, thanks for the cards and the texts uh, the flowers and the offers of help and um, I, I genuinely have found your kindness overwhelming so um, Thank you for that. It it means the world to me. I suppose I'm I'm realizing afresh again that nothing that anybody does for us at a time like this can uh, take away any sense of loss or pain. That's not really how how it works. Instead, I think we experience that having others with us, uh, we feel less alone. And we feel that others are, are carrying and sharing our burden. So thank you for that. It's good to be back. And I had to smile when I looked up uh, on Wednesday, when I came back to work, when I looked up what the passage would be for this morning. Um, I, I think I've said this before in in church life. Um, But certainly it's the case today. There are a lot of times when I feel like I'm preaching for myself. Uh, Maybe today, again, is is one of those days. You're you're very welcome to listen in, of course. But I need to hear the gospel today, too. Um, Let's pray. Father God, we know that you're the one who gives life. We know that you're the one alone who can conquer death. And for many of us, we need to to be reassured of that. We need to be reassured of that for our loved ones whom we've lost, and even for ourselves, as we contemplate our lives and our futures. Lord, come and show us that you're stronger than death. Amen. This morning we reached the seventh and the final of the signs uh, which John has recorded in his gospel. So in the first ten chapters, don't worry that you won't be remembering exactly what the other six signs were, but John has, has flagged up Uh, six previous occasions where Jesus does something that we might call a miracle but John says they're they're signs that tell us something about who Jesus is so the the six signs he turned water into wine he healed uh, an official's son, he healed the man by the pool in Bethesda he fed 5,000, he calmed the storm and most recently we saw him healing a man born blind so this seventh And this final sign, this raising Lazarus from the dead, it it acts like a a tipping point in, in John's gospel because these events bring us to the point of no return. We're told in verse 53 that the Sanhedrin, that's the ruling Jewish council, plotted from that day on to take his life. There are no more signs, and Jesus' life will soon be taken That's the point we've reached at. We're entering Jesus' last days. I'm sure it probably struck you as we read it because it it reads a little bit strange. There's a bit of a a staged quality about this one of Jesus' miracles. Usually if Jesus got word that somebody was sick, he would respond quickly and he'd go and he'd heal the sick person. He'd often change his own plans to go and do that. He'd just get there quickly. But this time we read in verse three that he hears the request, come and and look look out for Lazarus, your sick friend. And he lingers on for a day or two before he does anything. And Jesus knew that this delay would would lead to Lazarus's death. So in verse four, he tells us the purpose of this stage scene and the grief that it provokes. He says, it's for God's glory so that God's Son might be glorified through it. I want you to notice four things. They're pretty straight, simple, uh, but important things to notice from this incident that I do think tell us more of the glory of Jesus. The first thing, I think this scene shows us more clearly than most in Scripture that Jesus loves people. John's account here, this seventh sign, is by far the most personal of the others of the signs. He's got a big cast of people in this story. So he has the family members, the grieving friends from Jerusalem. He has Jesus' disciples. He's the hostile chief priests and the Pharisees meeting in council. Five of the cast here are named. So of Lazarus, Mary, Martha the disciple Thomas, and the high priest Caiaphas. That's unusual by John's standards. The other stories, apart from the name Jesus, names are few and far between. So you have in the first sign, the water into wine one, you have the mention of Mary. And in the fourth sign, the the feeling of the 5,000, you have uh, Philip and Andrew. But that's it. Six signs and three names are mentioned Because these aren't human interest stories. They're not stories about the the characters. These are stories about Jesus. They're all with the one purpose of showing us who Jesus is. But I think what's unique about this last story is that, that the people do become extremely important in it. John wants to show us how Jesus responds to human beings. And he wants to show us that he loves them. So look at verse 3. The sisters send message to Jesus that Lazarus, their brother, is dead. Lord, the one you love is sick. And then look at verse 5. John, as narrator, now tells us that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. These guys were his friends We know that from the other uh, gospel accounts Whenever he was passing through Bethany Just a couple of miles from Jerusalem This is a house where Jesus stopped by for tea This is a place where he spent his downtime With his friends Jesus, the living God And he loved people Verse 35 is very famous in the Bible. You'll maybe know that or maybe not. It's famous for being the shortest verse in the Bible. Ironically, that's not, for me, the most interesting thing about this verse. Uh, This verse is profound, I think, because of what it tells us about the Savior. He was moved to tears at the death of a friend. The Word made flesh. The living God tears streaming down his face we're told twice in the gospel accounts of of Jesus weeping once when he's outside the city of Jerusalem where he weeps for the whole city and all its many people but here it's for one family he weeps at a friend's grave Do you know this about the God whom we worship here? That he loves you? He's not only the God who loves the world. God so loved the world. He loves you. When our hearts are breaking, his heart breaks also. Jesus loves people. Secondly, in this passage, Jesus hates death. Mary's crying, Martha's crying, the mourners are crying. And John tells us in verse 35 that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now bear in mind that Jesus is going to raise this guy from the dead in a few minutes, and he knows it. Why is he troubled by this death? Death had never bothered Jesus before. Whenever he came across a a funeral procession in the village of Nain, he raised the the widow's son there, and it was no great effort to him. He returned Jairus' daughter to life and again, that didn't take much effort out of him. He just told her, my child, get up. It was like a parent standing beside a bed and saying, up you pop. And, and there she was. What is it here with Lazarus's family, though, that he seems troubled, affected, and distressed? Jesus knew that actually for Lazarus, he was in a much better place just now. He was all the better off for having moved from this life to the next. Mary and Martha knew that too, but they only knew it in theory. Unlike Jesus and unlike Lazarus, they they had never heard the sound of laughter the far side of death. Belief in God's love and his power were overwhelmed in that moment by their sense of their loss and their grief. All they felt was pain. I think it's this sense of loss and pain that his friends were experiencing that was so upsetting for Jesus. He was angry at death. Good Friday of 2003 will probably always live on in my memory. I was serving at the time as a minister in High Kirk in Ballymena and I remember standing in a graveyard on the outskirts of Ballymena burying a man who died in his prime. He'd left a young wife and a daughter still at primary school. And whenever I saw that, saw the the effect of a life, particularly one cut short, and I saw the pain of that family, I, I found myself not just sad but angry angry at death and about 20 feet away was the grave of a young man whom I'd buried a few months earlier he was a young soldier who'd taken some leisure time with his friends and they had gone together for a parachute jump and his parachute hadn't opened 19 years old a mere boy and that afternoon, I stood between those two graves and I sensed something different than just sadness and sorrow. It was a sense of, of anger. I found myself appalled at death. And this gospel account here, I think, shows us Jesus sharing that sense of, of our revulsion at death. It, The Greek scholars tell us that the word translated here as deeply moved and troubled It, it talks about an anger or a rage Jesus is furious with death and why wouldn't he be what did he tell us in John chapter 10 verse 10 I've come that they might have life and have it to the full Jesus hates death. We've seen so far that Jesus loves people and that he hates death, but notice thirdly that he brings life. He approaches Lazarus' tomb. What he does here is very weird, and I, and I hope you can see that. He's been buried for four days, and Jesus asks for the tomb to be opened. And then he prays to his father and then he shouts to a corpse and he says, Lazarus, come out. And John, again, the master of understatement, he says, the dead man came out. Now, dead people don't do that, do they? Dead people don't come out of their graves They don't wake up. Their heart doesn't start beating. Their blood doesn't begin to rush. Their their lungs don't inhale. No, dead men don't come out. They don't even hear the command. Not Not unless they hear the words, the voice of the Lord of life. The ears of the dead will be de- deaf to, to your voice or to mine, but not to Jesus. In Romans 14, Paul tells us that Jesus is the Lord of both the living and the dead. When Jesus speaks to the dead, the dead listen. I was reading one writer who made a, a, an interesting point. He said, if, if Jesus hadn't used Lazarus's name that day, If he had just shouted, come out, the graveyard would have emptied. They'd have all come out. Friends, we, we live in a world that just won't go here, that won't talk about death. We tiptoe around it as though it'll never happen, not to the ones we love and certainly never to us. We hardly ever speak about this truth that one day all of us will die. And whenever people do talk about it, we say that they're morbid. And we go back to talking about whatever was on TV last night. I wonder do we really believe, and this is important, do we really believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? That's what he says here in verse 25. Death has no terror for the child of God. We know that we're secure with Jesus because he's the the Lord of life and death and life after death. Death, be not proud, said the great English poet John Donne. I always think he stole that idea from, from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul taunts death. He says, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus loves people, he hates death, and he gives life. The fourth and final thing I want you to notice from this passage is that Jesus gave his life to give us life. Lazarus' death, this temporary reprieve from the grave that he had, isn't enough to deal with the problem of death for all of us. It's going to take much more than that. And in the closing paragraph of the chapter, which we didn't read, we get a quite cryptic indicator of where our hope lies. We get the clearest sense so far of the impending death of Jesus. The Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, they're debating what they should do with Jesus. Caiaphas, the high priest, says it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He's not making a spiritual statement. He's expressing in a nutshell his entire collaborating approach to politics he's basically saying listen we should have no problem sacrificing one Galilean rabbi if it helps keep peace with Rome and keep us in a position of power that's what Caiaphas is talking about but while he's talking politics he's spoken at the same time a truth that he can't even begin to imagine John tells us in verse 51 that Caiaphas was prophesying that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for that nation but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and to make them one. Yes, Jesus was going to die for others but not to keep peace with Rome. Jesus died for all for the Jews and for all, to make peace with God. Jesus' death was going to be the way in which God was going to gather his children to himself. This is how Jesus gives life to each one of us, by giving his life for us. We've come to the end of this brief look at the resurrection of Lazarus. It seems to me that we could sum up here uh, what we've learned here with Paul's words from 1 Thessalonians four thirteen. He says, brothers, we don't want you to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Grieve, Paul says. Of course. Grieve as Jesus did with Mary and with Martha. But don't grieve as those who have no hope. Don't grieve like those who don't know how the story ends. On Monday of this week, I gathered with my brothers and sister to bury our dad. And we have been grieving in these days of his dying and his death. But we're not grieving as those who have no hope. We have seen more clearly than ever how the gospel really is the answer to everything. Maybe you'll allow me to finish by sharing just a small part of the tribute I paid to my dad at his funeral on Monday. Lutz was born on the 23rd of April, 1939. The first son of Heinz and Auguste Ebbinghaus. He was soon joined by three siblings, Dirk, Ute, and Goethe, and their home was in Vetting in the northwest of Berlin. In his own inimitable style, Dad told us of his early days in war torn Berlin as if they were the greatest times of all. One day they'd be in the woods throwing live ammunition into a fire. Next day they'd find a dead soldier. And even while he was telling these stories of growing up in, in freezing winters, wearing only rags and scavenging for food, rather than drawing in your sympathy, Dad had a way of telling these stories that made you think you'd missed out by not being part of it. The truth is that Lutz started life in extremely difficult circumstances. As children, they were evacuated from Berlin and spent long periods of time in Poland. At the end of the war, when Berlin fell into Russian hands, he remembers the Russians coming to his home and taking his dad away. His dad was never seen or heard from again. And for a young boy in the very earliest years of his life to be removed from his home and to have his father removed from him must have had a very deep and profound impact on him. It might just be that this sense of homelessness and fatherlessness remained with him for the rest of his life. In the early hours of Wednesday, the 30th of January, he suffered a huge stroke, which left him very little hope of any recovery. And in the early hours of Wednesday, the 6th of February, he died peacefully in the Ulster Hospital. It's been a time of great sorrow and mourning for us all. To give up the Father whom we love is breaking our hearts. But in this time of grief and mourning, we want you to know of our joy. Our father who finished, who who grew up fatherless and homeless, has finished his race. He's gone to a better country. And we know what's waiting for him there. His heavenly father, the father of Jesus Christ, has been waiting for him. He's been scarring the horizon looking for his coming. And as he's seen him still a long way off, he's run out to greet him. He's thrown his arms around him and he's kissed him. And he said, Let's, my son, welcome home. Friends, do you see it now how the gospel really is the answer to everything? Our loved ones will die one day, and so will we. But that's not how the story ends. Jesus Christ says in this episode that we've just read here today I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He asks. Well, do you?